0: 291. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's HP Lovecraft month here on The Drabblecast, a full month of cosmic horror and vast unspeakable weirdness in honor of the patron saint of weird short stories himself, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Lovecraft died in 1937, a direct predecessor and influence on the great Edgar Allan Poe, not to mention legions of fanfic writers up to this day. In fact, our month of original commissioned H.P. Lovecraft mythos fiction is kind of an extension and homage to that rich fanfic culture that Lovecraft inspired in generations to come. Just where would we be without the mysterious Necronomicon on our shelves, or dread Cthulhu in our dreams, driving us mad with his hideous winged octopus badassery? We'd be a little more bored and a little less recoiling in horror at the small and insignificant role we play beside the cold, unflinching vastness of cosmic hyperspace. That's where. Lovecraft never wrote novels, only short stories, which in the end come across feeling like fragments of a novel, bits and pieces that never reveal the whole story, but when put together hint at entire ancient cultures, possible thriving life forms, undescribable non-Euclidean realities, and a general consensus that we're all totally f***ed. This entire month, we're bringing you original stories commissioned by the Drabblecast and produced here first and for your ears only by a fantastic trio of Hugo-nominated authors, Ken Liu, Helena Bell, and Ferret Steinmetz. Makes you just wanna jump through that second floor window from the unspeakable awesomeness of it all, huh? The window. The window! If you are not a fan of Lovecraft, or generally unfamiliar with his work, no worries. We asked the authors we commissioned this month to write stories that stand up just as well on their own. They're solid pieces, and I can't wait to present them to you. That's later on, though. For now, let's hit up a little poetry. Is the Drap of poetry corner, baby? So, for the past three years here on the Drabblecast, we've opened up Lovecraft Month by producing selections from his totally bitchin' 36-set sonnet cycle, The Fungi from Yuggoth. This year, we're not only bringing you another round of Lovecraft's bizarre classical sonnets here on the show, we're recording and producing all of the remaining sonnets as well, whipping them all together with the past years into one unique and cohesive narrative and soundscape, and then presenting the whole entire collection for your listening enjoyment on Drabblecast B-Sides, our premium content feed. If you're a fan of these poems, and dear god how could you not be, I think you'll really enjoy our production of the whole cycle. It's worth signing up for Drabblecast B-Sides in and of itself, in my opinion, never mind all the other great premium content we'll have coming at you on the B-Sides feed this month. Sign up for a Drebblecast $10 a month automatic subscription at our webpage, www.drabblecast.org, to get access to DC B-Sides, if you haven't already. Support your favorite purveyors of weirdness on the internet. Go ahead, do it now. We're not going anywhere. Probably, we do have a weakness for ancient tomes and arcane portals. Anyways, we bring you The Fungi from Yuggoth by H.P. Lovecraft. Farmer Seth was well past 80 when he tried to sink the deep well by his door. With only Eb to help him bore and bore, we laughed and hoped he'd soon be sane again. And yet, instead, young Eb went crazy too, so that they shipped him from the cottage farm. Seth bricked up the well mouth tight as glue, then hacked an artery in his gnarled left arm. After the funeral, we felt bound to get, out to that well to rip the bricks away. But all we saw were iron handholds set, down a black hole deeper than we could say. We placed the bricks back up when we had found, the hole too deep for any line to sound. The house was old, with tangled wings outthrown, of which no one could ever half keep track. And in a cellar somewhere near the back, an odd tunnel sealed with ancient stone. There, in dream-plagued childhood, quite alone, I used to go when night reigned vague and black. Parting cobwebs with a curious lack of fear, and with a wonder each time grown. I'd come back one day with masons there, to find what view my dim forebears had shunned. But as they pierced the stone, a rush of air burst from the alien voids that yawned beyond. They fled, but peering through, I found unrolled all the wild worlds which my dreams had told. John Watley took a home outside the town up where the hills begin to huddle thick. We never thought his wits were very quick, the way he let that cottage farm run down. He used to waste his time on some queer books he'd found deep in the cellar of his place, till funny lines got creased into his face and folks all said they didn't like his looks. When he began those night howls, we declared he'd better be locked up away from harm. So three men came from Aylesbury Town Farm to fetch him, but came back alone and scared. They'd found him talking to two crouching things that at their step flew off on great black wings. Beyond this wall, whose ancient masonry reaches almost to the sky in moss-thick towers, there would be terraced gardens rich with flowers and flutter of bird and butterfly and bee. There would be walks and bridges arching over. Warm lotus pools reflecting temple eaves And cherry trees with delicate boughs and leaves Against a pink sky where the herons hover All would be there if never I had flung. Open that gate to this stone-lanterned maze where drowsy streams spin out their winding ways, eternal under bending branches hung. I hurried back, yet the wall rose grim and great, and I found there was no longer any gate. They told her not to take the Briggs Hill path, which used to be the high road through Tazore, for Goody Watkins, hanged in 1704, had left a certain monstrous aftermath. Yet when she disobeyed and had in view the vine-hung cottage by that wooded slope, she could not think of elms or hempen rope but wondered why the old house seemed so new. She stopped a while to watch the fading day, then heard faint howls as from a room upstairs, when through the ivied panes one sunset ray struck in and caught the howler unawares. She glimpsed and ran in frenzy from the place, and from a four-pawed thing with human face. I saw it from my hidden silent maze, where the old wood half shuts the meadow in. It shone through all the sunset's glories thin, at first, but with a slowly brightening face. Night came, and that lone beacon amber hued beat on my sight as never it did of old. An evening star, but grown a thousandfold, more haunting in this hush and solitude. It traced strange pictures on the quivering air half-memories that had always filled my eyes of bricks and stone, the wonder of a child of some dim life I never could tell where. But now I knew that through this cosmic dome those rays were calling from my far-lost home. There is, in certain ancient things, a trace of some dim essence more than form or weight, a tenuous ether indeterminate, yet linked with all the laws of time and space, a faint veiled sign of continuities that outward eyes can never quite descry, of locked dimensions harboring years gone by and out of reach except for hidden keys. I'm moved the most when slanting sunbeams glow on old farm buildings set against some hill, and paint with life the shapes which linger still from centuries less a dream than this we know. In that strange light, i feel i am not far from that fixed mass whose sides the ages are and that's why you don't go around poking walls Doesn't matter if it's Facebook, glory holes, or ancient, crumbling partitions of evil buried in the bowels of the earth, I'll whisper words of wisdom, folks. Let it be. Alright, so for this year's Lovecraft Tribute Month, we're focusing on one particular subject that Lovecraft, the ridiculous-looking fans of Tokyo Hotel, and annoying owners of Apple products everywhere are well versed in. Creepy Cult Membership. The blind cosmos and all of its omnivorous, sanity-smashing secrets and entities grind aimlessly on against all rational explanation, or are even knowing. Every now and then our little lizard brains get a brief flicker into the bottomless horrors and vast screaming darkness, and we suppress, ignore, and constrain these forces. Because it's not the sleep of reason that breeds monsters, but reason with eyes agog. At least that's what most of us do. Should we be unfortunate enough to find ourselves in a Lovecraft story, unwittingly cracking open that ominous-looking tome we found in our insane and suicidal uncle's musty attic? Whoop, nothing to see here, just a way to possibly reanimate corpses. I'll just be putting this right back here on the shelf. Hmm, who's in the mood for IHOP? But not cult members. Lovecraft used cult members as a tool for exploring our intrigue with the unknown, our fascination with the forbidden, the allure and the consequences of staring the incomprehensible right between its dead eyes set in crystal gulfs below. One of my favorite passages from Lovecraft's popular novella At the Mountains of Madness sums this fascination up nicely to shake off the maddening and wearying limitations of time and space and natural law, to be linked with the vast outside, to come close to the knighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and ultimate, surely such things were worth the risk of one's life, soul, and sanity, to at last rebel against the tyranny of reason and its ordered objective universe. Hey, you be the judge. So on that note, and to start things off this month in traditional fashion, we're of course bringing you a story by the man himself, a story of paranormal investigation called The Lurking Fear, which was first published in 1923 in the pulp magazine Homebrew, issue number seven. We hope you enjoy. So without further ado, we bring you The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft. 1. The Shadow on the Chimney There was thunder in the air on the night I went to the deserted mansion atop Tempest Mountain to find the lurking fear. I was not alone, for foolhardiness was not then mixed with that love of the grotesque and the terrible which has made my career a series of quests for strange horrors in literature and in life. With me were two faithful and muscular men for whom I had sent when the time came, men long associated with me in my ghastly explorations because of their peculiar fitness. We had started quietly from the village because of the reporters who had still lingered about after the eldritch panic of a month before, the nightmare creeping death. Later, I thought they might aid me, but I did not want them then. Would to God I had let them share the search, that I might not have had to bear the secret alone so long, to bear it alone for the fear the world would call me mad, or go mad itself at the demon implications of the thing. Now that I'm telling it anyway, lest the brooding make me a maniac, I wish I had never concealed it. For I, and I only, know what manner of fear lurked on that spectral and desolate mountain." In a small motor car, we covered the miles of primeval forest and hill until the wooded ascent checked it. The country bore an aspect more than usually sinister as we viewed it by night and without the accustomed crowds of investigators, so that we were often tempted to use the acetylene headlights despite the attention it might attract. It was not a wholesome landscape after dark, and I believe I would have noticed its morbidity even if I'd been ignorant of the terror that stalked there. Of wild creatures there were none. They are wise when death leers close." The ancient, lightning-scarred trees seemed unnaturally large and twisted, and the other vegetation unnaturally thick and feverish, while curious mounds and hummocks in the weedy, fulgurite pitted earth reminded me of snakes and dead men's skulls swelled to gigantic proportions. Fear had lurked on Tempest Mountain for more than a century. This, I learned at once from newspaper accounts of the catastrophe which first brought the region to the world's notice. The place is a remote, lonely elevation in that part of the Catskills where Dutch civilization once feebly and transiently penetrated, leaving behind, as it receded, only a few ruined mansions and a degenerate squatter population inhabiting pitiful hamlets. Other beings seldom visited the locality till the state police were formed, and even now only infrequent troopers patrol it. The fear, however, is an old tradition throughout the neighboring villages, since it is a prime topic in the simple discourse of the poor mongrels who sometimes leave their valleys to trade hand-woven baskets for such primitive necessities as they cannot shoot, raise, or make. The lurking fear dwelt in the shunned and deserted Martinese mansion, which crowned the high but gradual eminence whose liability to frequent thunderstorms gave it the name Tempest Mountain. For over a hundred years, the antique, grove-circled stone house had been the subject of stories incredibly wild and monstrous—stories of a silent, colossal, creeping death which stalked abroad in summer. With whimpering insistence, the squatters told tales of a demon which seized lone wayfarers after dark, either carrying them off or leaving them in a frightful state of gnawed dismemberment, while sometimes they whispered of blood trials toward the distant mansion. Some said the thunder called the lurking fear out of its habitation, while others said the thunder was its voice. No one outside the backwoods had believed these varying and conflicting stories with their incoherent, extravagant descriptions of the half-glimpsed fiend. Yet not a farmer or villager doubted that the Martinese mansion was ghoulishly haunted. Local history forbade such a doubt, although no ghostly evidence was ever found by such investigators as had visited the building after some especially vivid tales by squatters grandmothers told strange myths of the Martinese specter, myths concerning the Martinese family itself, its queer hereditary dissimilarity of eyes, its long unnatural annals, and the murder which had cursed it. The terror which brought me to the scene was a sudden and portentous confirmation of the mountaineer's wildest legends. One summer night, after a thunderstorm of unprecedented violence, the countryside was aroused by a squatter stampede which no mere delusion could create. The pitiful throngs of natives shrieked and whined at the unnamed horror which had descended upon them, and they were not doubted. They had not seen it, but had heard such cries from one of their hamlets that they knew a creeping death had come. In the morning, citizens and state troopers followed the shuddering mountaineers to the place where they said the death had come. Death was indeed there. The ground under one of the squatters' villages had caved in after a lightning stroke, destroying several of the malodorous shanties, but upon this property damage was superimposed an organic devastation which paled to its significance of a possible seventy-five natives who had inhabited this spot not one living specimen was visible the disordered earth was covered with blood and human debris bespeaking too vividly the ravages of demon teeth and talons yet no visible trail led away from the carnage that some hideous animal must be the cause, everyone quickly agreed, nor did any tongue now revive the charge that such cryptic deaths formed merely the sordid murders common in decadent communities. That charge was revived only when about twenty-five of the estimated population were found missing from the dead, and even then it was hard to explain the murder of fifty by half that number. But the fact remained that on a summer night, a bolt had come out of the heavens and left a dead village whose corpses were horribly mangled, chewed, and clawed. The excited countryside immediately connected the horror with the haunted Martinese mansion, though the localities were over three miles apart The troopers were more skeptical, including the mansion only casually in their investigations and dropping it altogether when they found it thoroughly deserted. Country and village people, however, canvassed the place with infinite care, overturning everything in the house, sounding ponds and brooks, beating down bushes and ransacking the nearby forests. All was in vain. The death that had come had left no trace save destruction itself. By the second day of the search, the affair was fully treated by the newspapers, whose reporters overran Tempest Mountain. They described it in much detail and with many interviews to elucidate the horror's history as told by local grandums. I followed the accounts languidly at first, for I am a connoisseur in horrors, but after a week I detected an atmosphere which stirred me oddly, so that on August 5th, 1921, I registered among the reporters who crowded the hotel at Leffert's Corner, nearest village to Tempest Mountain, and acknowledged headquarters of the search. Three weeks more, and the dispersal of the reporters left me free to begin a terrible exploration based on the minute inquiries and surveying with which I had meanwhile busied myself. So on this summer night, while distant thunder rumbled, I left a silent motor car and trampled with two armed companions up the last mound-covered reaches of Tempest Mountain, casting the beams of an electric torch on the spectral gray walls that began to appear through giant oaks. In this morbid night solitude and feeble shifting illumination, the vast box-like pile displayed obscure hints of terror which day could not uncover. Yet I did not hesitate, since I had come with fierce resolution to test an idea. I believed that the thunder called the death demon out of some fearsome, secret place, and be that demon's solid entity or vaporous pestilence, I meant to see it. I had thoroughly searched the ruin before, hence knew my plan well, choosing as the seat of my vigil the old room of Jan Martinese, whose murder looms so great in the rural legends. I felt subtly that the apartment of this ancient victim was best for my purposes. The chamber, measuring about twenty feet square, contained, like the other rooms, some rubbish which once had been furniture. It lay on the second story, on the southeast corner of the house, and had an immense east window and narrow south window, both devoid of panes or shutters. Opposite the large window was an enormous Dutch fireplace with scriptural tiles representing the prodigal son, and opposite the narrow window was a spacious bed built into the wall. As the tree-muffled thunder grew louder, I arranged my plans to tails. First I fastened side by side to the ledge of the large window three rope ladders which I had brought with me. I knew they reached a suitable spot on the grass outside, for I had tested them. Then the three of us dragged from another room a wide four-poster bedstead, crowding it laterally across the window. Having strewn it with fur bows, all now rested on it with drawn automatics, two relaxing while the third watched. From whatever direction the demon might come, our potential escape was provided. If it came from within the house, we had the window ladders, if from outside, the door and the stairs. We did not think, judging from precedent, that it would pursue us far even at worst. I watched from midnight to one o'clock, when in spite of the sinister house, the unprotected window and the approaching thunder and lightning, I felt singularly drowsy. I was between my two companions george Bennett being toward the window and william Toby toward the fireplace Bennett was asleep having apparently felt the same anomalous drowsiness which affected me so I designated Toby for the next watch although even he was nodding it is curious how intently I had been watching that fireplace The increasing thunder must have affected my dreams, for in the brief time I slept, there came to me apocalyptic visions. Once I partly awaked, probably because the sleeper toward the window had restlessly flung an arm across my chest. I was not sufficiently awake to see whether Toby was attending to his duties, but felt a distinct anxiety on that score. Never before had the presence of evil so poignantly oppressed me. Later, I must have dropped asleep again, for it was out of a phantasmal chaos that my mind leaped when the night grew hideous with shrieks beyond anything in my former experience or imagination. In that shrieking, the inmost soul of human fear and agony clawed hopelessly and insanely at the ebony gates of oblivion. I awoke to red madness as farther and farther down inconceivable vistas that phobic and crystalline anguish retreated. There was no light, but I knew from the empty space at my right that Toby was gone. God alone knew whither. Across my chest still lay the heavy arm of the sleeper at my left. Then came the devastating stroke of lightning which shook the whole mountain, lit the darkest crypts of the hoary grove, and splintered the patriarch of the twisted trees and the demon flash of a monstrous fireball, the sleeper started up suddenly while the glare from beyond the window threw his shadow vividly upon the chimney above the fireplace. That I am still alive and sane is a marvel I cannot fathom. I cannot fathom it, for the shadow on that chimney was not that of George Bennett or any other human creature, but a blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters, a nameless, shapeless abomination which no mind could fully grasp and no pen can even partly describe. In another second, I was alone in the accursed mansion, shivering and gibbering. George Bennett and William Toby had left no trace, not even a struggle. They were never heard of again. 2. A Passer in the Storm For days after that hideous experience in the forest-swathed mansion, I lay nervously exhausted in my hotel room at Lefert's Corners. I do not remember exactly how I managed to reach the motorcar, start it, and slip unobserved back to the village, for I retain no distinct impression save the wild-armed titan trees, demoniac mutterings of thunder, and chironic shadows athwart the low mounds that dotted and streaked the region. As I shivered and brooded on the casting of that brain-blasting shadow, I knew that I had at least pried out one of Earth's supreme horrors, one of those nameless blights of outer voids whose faint demon-scratchings we sometimes hear on the farthest rim of space, yet from which our own finite vision has given us merciful immunity. The shadow I had seen, I hardly dared to analyze or identify. Something had lain between me and the window that night, but I shuddered whenever I could not cast off the instinct to classify it. If it had only snarled or bayed or laughed titteringly, even that would have relieved the abysmal hideousness. But it was so silent. It had rested a heavy arm or foreleg on my chest. Obviously, it was organic or had once been organic. Yon Martinese, whose room I had invaded, was buried in the graveyard near the mansion. I must find Bennett and Toby. If they lived, why had it picked them and left me for the last? Drowsiness is so stifling. Dreams are so horrible. In a short time I realized that I must tell my story to someone, or break down completely. I had already decided not to abandon the quest for the lurking fear, for in my rash ignorance it seemed to me that uncertainty was worse than enlightenment, however terrible the latter might prove to be. Accordingly, I resolved in my mind the best course to pursue. Whom to select for my confidences, how to track down the thing which had obliterated two men, and cast that nightmare shadow. And the more I reflected, the more my preference inclined towards one Arthur Monroe, a dark, lean man of about thirty-five, whose education, taste, intelligence, and temperament all seemed to mark him as one not bound to conventional ideas and experiences. On an afternoon in early September, Arthur Monroe listened to my story. I saw from the beginning that he was both interested and sympathetic, and when I'd finished, he analyzed and discussed the thing with the greatest shrewdness and judgment. His advice, moreover, was eminently practical, for he recommended a postponement of operations at the Martinese mansion until we might become fortified with more detailed historical and geographical data. On his initiative, we combed the countryside for more information regarding the terrible Martinese family, and discovered a man who possessed a marvelously illuminating ancestral diary. We also talked at length with such of the mountain mongrels as had not fled from the terror and confusion to remoter slopes, and arranged to proceed our culminating task, the exhaustive and definitive examination of the mansion in the light of its detailed history, with an equally exhaustive and definitive examination of spots associated with the various tragedies of squatter legend. The results of this examination were not at first enlightening, though our tabulation of them seemed to reveal a fairly significant trend, namely that the number of reported horrors was by far the greatest in areas either comparatively near the avoided house or connected with it by stretches of the morbidly overnourished forest. There were, it is true, exceptions. Indeed, the horror which had caught the world's ear had happened in a treeless space, remote alike from the mansion and from any connecting woods. As to the nature and appearance of the lurking fear, nothing could be gained from the scared and witless shanty-dwellers. In the same breath, they called it a snake and a giant, a thunder devil and a bat, a vulture and a walking tree. We did, however, deem ourselves justified in assuming that it was a living organism highly susceptible to electrical storms, and although certain of the stories suggested wings, we believed that its aversion for open spaces made land locomotion a more probable theory. By the middle of October, we were puzzled by our lack of progress— Owing to the clear nights, no demonic aggressions had taken place, and the completeness of our vain searches of house and country almost drove us to regard the lurking fear as a non-material agency. We feared that the cold weather would come on and halt our explorations, for all agreed that the demon was generally quiet in winter. Thus, there was a kind of haste and desperation in our last daylight canvas of the horror-visited Hamlet—a Hamlet Hamlet now deserted because of the squatter's fears. The ill-fated squatter Hamlet had borne no name, but had long stood in a sheltered though treeless cleft between two elevations called, respectively, Cone Mountain and Maple Hill. It was closer to Maple Hill, some of the crude abodes indeed being dugouts on the side of the former eminence. Geographically, it lay about two miles northwest of the base of Tempest Mountain, and three miles from the oak-girt mansion. The upheaval of ground we traced conclusively to a landslide from Maple Hill, a tall, lone splintered tree on whose side had been the striking point of a thunderbolt which summoned the fiend we were filled with a certain discouragement coupled with vague and novel fears. It was acutely uncanny, even when frightful and uncanny things were common to encounter so blankly clueless a scene after such overwhelming occurrences. And we moved about beneath the leaden darkening sky with that tragic directionless seal which results from a combined sense of futility and necessity of action. As the afternoon advanced, it became increasingly difficult to see, and we heard the rumble of a thunderstorm gathering over Tempest Mountain. This sound in such a locality naturally stirred us, though less than it would have done at night. As it was, we hoped desperately that the storm would last until well after dark, and with that hope turned from our aimless hillside searching toward the nearest inhabited hamlet to gather a body of squatters as helpers in the investigation. We had hardly more than turned, however, when there descended such a blinding sheet of torrential rain that shelter became imperative. The extreme, almost nocturnal darkness of the sky caused us to stumble sadly, but guided by the frequent flashes of lightning, we soon reached the least porous cabin of the lot, a heterogeneous combination of logs and boards whose still existing door and single tiny window both faced Maple Hill. Barring the door after us against the fury of the wind and the rain, we put in place the crude window shutter which our frequent searches had taught us where to find. It was dismal sitting there on rickety boxes in the pitchy darkness, but we smoked pipes and occasionally flashed our pocket lamps about. Now and then we could see the lightning through the cracks in the walls. The afternoon was so incredibly dark that each flash was extremely vivid. The stormy vigil reminded me shudderingly of my ghastly night on Tempest Mountain. My mind turned to that odd question which had kept reoccurring ever since the nightmare thing had happened, and again I wondered why the demon, approaching the three watchers either from the window or interior, had begun with the men on each side and left the middle man at last when the titan fireball had scared it away. Why had it not taken its victims in natural order, with myself second from whichever direction it approached? With what manner of far-reaching tentacles did it pray, or did it know that I was the leader and save me for a fate worse than that of my companions? In the midst of these reflections, as if dramatically arranged to intensify them, there fell nearby a terrific bolt of lightning, followed by the sound of slicing earth. At the same time, the wolfish wind rose to demoniac crescendos of ululation. We were sure that the lone tree on Maple Hill had been struck again, and Monroe rose from his box and went to the tiny window to ascertain the damage. When he took down the shutter, the wind and rain howled deafeningly in, so that I could not hear what he had said. But I waited while he leaned out and tried to fathom nature's pandemonium. Gradually, a calming of the wind and dispersal of the unusual darkness told of the storm's passing. I had hoped it would last into the night and help our quest, but a furtive sunbeam from a knot hole behind me removed the likelihood of such a thing. Suggesting to Monroe that we had better get some light even if more showers came, I unbarred and opened the crude door. The ground outside was a singular mass of mud and pools, with fresh heaps of earth from the slight landslide, but I saw nothing to justify the interest which kept my companion slightly leaning out of the window. Crossing to where he leaned, I touched his shoulder, but he did not move. Then, as I playfully shook him and turned him round, I felt the strangling tendrils of a cancerous horror, whose roots reached into illimitable pasts and fathomless abysms of the night that broods beyond time. For Arthur Monroe was dead, and on what remained of his chewed and gouged head, there was no longer a face. Three what the red glare meant. On the tempest-wracked night of November 8th, 1921, with a lantern which cast charnel shadows, I stood digging alone and idiotically in the grave of Jan Martinese. I believe that my mind was partly unhinged by events since August 5th the demon shadow in the mansion, the general strain and disappointment, and the thing that occurred in the hamlet in an October storm. After that thing I had dug a grave for one whose death I could not understand. I knew that others could not understand either, so let them think Arthur Monroe had wandered away. They searched, but found nothing. The squatters might have understood, but I dared not frighten them any more. I myself seemed strangely callous. That shock at the mansion had done something to my brain, and I could think only of the quest for a horror now grown to cataclysmic stature in my imagination, a quest which the fate of Arthur Monroe made me vow to keep silent and solitary. The scene of my excavations would alone have been enough to unnerve any ordinary man. Baleful, primal trees of unholy size, age, and grotesqueness leered above me like the pillars of some hellish druidic temple, muffling the thunder, hushing the clawing wind, and admitting but little rain. Beyond the scarred trunks in the background, illuminated by faint flashes of filtered lightning, rose the damp, ivied stones of the deserted mansion, while somewhat nearer was the abandoned Dutch garden whose walks and beds were polluted by a white fungus, fetid, overnourished vegetation that never saw full daylight. And nearest of all was the graveyard, where deformed trees tossed insane branches as their roots displaced unhallowed slabs and sucked venom from what lay below. Now and then, beneath the brown pall of leaves that rotted and festered in the antediluvian forest darkness, I could trace the sinister outlines of some of those low mounds which characterized the lightning-pierced region. History had led me to this archaic grave. History, indeed, was all I had after everything else had ended in mocking Satanism. I now believed that the lurking fear was no material thing but a wolf-fanged ghost that rode the midnight lightning. And I believed, because of the masses of local tradition I had unearthed in my search with Arthur Monroe, that the ghost was that of Jan Martinis, who had died in 1762. That is why I was digging idiotically in his grave. The Martinese Mansion was built in 1670 by Garrett Martinese, a wealthy New Amsterdam merchant who disliked the changing order under British rule, and had constructed this magnificent domicile on a remote woodland summit whose untrodden solitude and unusual scenery pleased him. The only substantial disappointment encountered in this site was that which concerned the prevalence of violent thunderstorms in summer. When selecting the hill and building his mansion, Minhir Martinis had laid these frequent natural outbursts to some peculiarity of the year. But in time, he perceived that the locality was especially liable to such phenomena. At length, having found these storms injurious to his health, he fitted up a cellar into which he could retreat from their wildest pandemonium. Of Garrett Martinese's descendants less is known than of himself, since they were all reared in hatred of the English civilization and trained to shun such of the colonists as accepted it. Their life was exceedingly secluded, and people declared that their isolation made them heavy of speech and comprehension. In appearance, all were marked by a peculiar inherited dissimilarity of eyes, one general being blue and the other brown. Their social contacts grew fewer and fewer, till at last they took to intermarrying with the numerous menial class about the estate, becoming more and more clannish and taciturn, yet developing a nervous responsiveness to the frequent thunderstorms. Most of this information reached the outside world through young Jan Martinese, who from some kind of restlessness joined the colonial army when news of the Albany Convention reached Tempest Mountain. He was the first of Garrett's descendants to see much of the world, and when he returned in 1760 after six years of campaigning, he was hated as an outsider by his father, uncles, and brothers, in spite of his dissimilar Martinese eyes. No longer could he share the peculiarities and prejudices of the Martinises, while the very mountain thunderstorms failed to intoxicate him as they had before. Instead, his surroundings depressed him, and he frequently wrote a friend in Albany of plans to leave the paternal roof. In the spring of 1763, Jonathan Gifford, an Albany friend of Jan Martinese, became worried by his correspondent's silence, especially in view of the conditions of quarrels at the Martinese's mansion. Determined to visit Jan in person, he went to the mountains on horseback. His diary states that he reached Tempest Mountain on September 20th, finding the mansion in great decrepitude. The sullen, awed-eyed Martinises, whose unclean animal aspect shocked him, told him in broken gutturals that Jan was dead. He had, they insisted, been struck by lightning the autumn before, and now laid buried behind the neglected sunken gardens. They showed the visitor the grave, barren and devoid of markers. Something in the Martinese's manner gave Gifford a feeling of repulsion and suspicion, and a week later he returned with spade and mattock to explore the sepulchral spot. He found what he had expected, a skull crushed cruelly as if by savage blows. So, returning to Albany, he openly charged the Martinises with the murder of their kinsmen. Legal evidence was lacking, but the story spread rapidly round the countryside, and from that time the Martinises were ostracized by the world. No one would deal with them, and their distant manor was shunned as an accursed place. Somehow, they managed to live on independently by the products of their estate, for occasional lights glimpsed from faraway hills attested their continued presence. These lights were seen as late as 1810, but toward that last time they became very infrequent. Meanwhile, there grew up about the mansion and the mountain a body of diabolic legendary. The place was avoided and invested with every whispered myth tradition could supply. It remained unvisited till 1816, when the continued absence of lights was noticed by the squatters. At that time, a party made investigations, finding the house deserted and partly in ruins. There were no skeletons about, so that departure rather than death was inferred. The clan seemed to have left several years before, and improvised penthouses showed how numerous it had grown prior to its migration. Its cultural level had fallen very low, as proved by decaying furniture and scattered silverware, which must have been long abandoned when its owners left. But though the dreaded Martinezes were gone, the fear of the haunted house continued and grew very acute when new and strange stories rose among the mountain decadents. There it stood, deserted, feared, and linked with the vengeful ghost of Jan Martinez. There it stood on the night I dug in Yon Martinez's grave. I have described my protracted digging as idiotic, and such it indeed was in object and method. The coffin of Jan Martinese had soon been unearthed. It now held only dust. But in my fury to exhume his ghost, I delved irrationally and clumsily down beneath where he had lain. God knows what I expected to find. I only felt that I was digging in the grave of a man whose ghost stalked by night. It is impossible to say what monstrous depth I attained when my spade, and soon my feet, broke through the ground beneath. The event, under the circumstances, was tremendous, for in the existence of a subterranean space here, my mad theories had terrible confirmation. My slight fall had extinguished the lantern, but I produced an electric pocket lamp and viewed the small horizontal tunnel which led away indefinitely in both directions. It was amply large enough for a man to wriggle through, and though no sane person would have tried it at that time, I forgot danger, reason, and cleanliness in my single-minded fever of unearthing the lurking fear. Choosing the direction toward the house, I scrambled recklessly into the narrow burrow, squirming ahead blindly and rapidly, and flashing but seldom the lamp I kept before me. What language can describe the spectacle of a man lost in infinitely abysmal earth, pawing, twisting and wheezing, scrambling madly through sunken convolutions of immemorial blackness without any idea of time and safety or definite object? There is something hideous in it, but that is what I did. I did it for so long that life faded far to memory, and I became one with the moles and grubs of nighted depths. Indeed, it was only by accident that after interminable writhings I jarred my forgotten electric lamp alight so that it shone eerily along the burrow of caked loam that stretched and curved ahead. I had been scrambling in this way for some time so that my battery had burned very low when the passage suddenly inclined sharply upward, altering my mode of progress. And as I raised my glance, it was without preparation, that I saw glistening in the distance two demonic reflections in my expiring lamp, two reflections glowing with a baneful and unmistakable effulgence and provoking maddeningly nebulous memories. I stopped automatically, though lacking the brain to retreat. The eyes approached, yet of the thing that bore them I could distinguish only a claw. But what a claw? Then, far overhead, I heard a faint crashing, which I recognized. It was the wild thunder of the mountain, raised to hysterical fury. I must have been crawling upward for some time so that the surface was now quite near, and as the muffled thunder clattered, those eyes still stared with vacuous viciousness. Thank God I did not then know what it was, else I should have died but I was saved by the very thunder that had summoned it. For after a hideous wait, there burst from the unseen outside sky one of those frequent mountainward bolts whose aftermath I had noticed here and there as gashes of disturbed earth. With cyclopean rage, it tore through the soil above that damnable pit, blinding and deafening me, yet not wholly reducing me to a coma in the chaos of sliding shifting earth i clawed and floundered helplessly till the rain on my head steadied me and i saw that i had come to the surface in a familiar spot a steep unforested place on the southwest slope of the mountain Recurrent sheets of lightning illumined the tumbled ground and the remains of the curious low hummock. My brain was as great a chaos as the earth, and as a distant red glare burst on the landscape, I hardly realized the horror I had been through. But when, two days later, the squatters told me what the red glare had meant, I felt more horror than that which the mold burrow and the claw and eyes had given. More horror because of the overwhelming implications. In a hamlet twenty miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt which brought me above ground, and a nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree into a weak roofed cabin. It had done a deed but the squatters had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed. At that very moment, the earth caved in on the thing with the claw and the eyes. Four, the horror in the eyes. There can be nothing normal in the mind of one who, knowing what I knew of the horrors of Tempest Mountain, would seek alone for the fear that lurked there. That at least two of the fear's embodiments were destroyed, formed but a slight guarantee of mental and physical safety. Yet I continued my quest with even greater zeal as events and revelations became more monstrous. When two days after my frightful crawl through that crypt of the eyes and claw, I learned that a thing had malignly hovered twenty miles away at that very same instant the eyes were glaring at me. But that fright was so mixed with wonder and alluring grotesqueness that it was almost a pleasant sensation. Sometimes, in the throes of a nightmare, when unseen powers whirl one over the roofs of strange, dead cities, it is a relief and even a delight to shriek wildly and throw oneself voluntarily along with the hideous vortex of dream doom into whatever bottomless gulf may yawn. And so it was with the waking nightmare of Tempest Mountain. The discovery that two monsters had haunted the spot gave me ultimately a mad craving to plunge into that very earth of a cursed region, with bare hands dig out the death that leered from every inch of poisonous soil. As soon as possible, I visited the grave of Jan Martinese and dug vainly where I had dug before. Some extensive cave-in had obliterated all trace of the underground passage, while the rain had washed so much earth back into the excavation that I could not tell how deeply I had dug the other day. I likewise made a difficult trip to the distant hamlet where the death creature had been burnt and was little repaid for my trouble. In the ashes of the fateful cabin, I found several bones, but apparently none of the monsters. The squatter said the thing had been the only victim, but in this I judged them incorrect, since beside the complete skull of a human being, there was another bony fragment which seemed certainly to have belonged to a human skull at some time. Though the rapid drop of the monster had been seen, no one could say just what the creature was like. Those who had glimpsed it called it simply a devil. Examining the great tree where it had lurked, I could discern no distinctive marks. I tried to find some trail into the black forest, but on this occasion could not stand the sight of those morbidly large bowls or the vast serpent-like roots that twisted so malevolently before they sank into the earth. The afternoon of my search brought nothing to light, and dusk came as I stood on Maple Hill, looking down at the hamlet and across the valley to Tempest Mountain. There had been a gorgeous sunset, and now the moon came up, nearly full and shedding a silver flood over the plain, the distant mountainside, and the curious low mounds that rose here and there. It was a peaceful Arcadian scene, but knowing what it hid, I hated it. I hated the mocking moon, the hypocritical plain, the festering mountain, and those sinister mounds. Everything seemed to me tainted with a loathsome contagion and inspired by a noxious alliance with distorted hidden powers. Presently, as I gazed abstractedly at the moonlit panorama, my eye became attracted by something singular in the nature and arrangement of a certain topographical element. Without having any exact knowledge of geology, I had from the first been interested in the odd mounds and hummocks of the region. I had noticed they were widely distributed around Tempest Mountain, though less numerous on the plain near the hilltop itself. Now in the light of that low moon, which cast long, weird shadows, it struck me forcibly that the various points and lines of the mound system had a peculiar relation to the summit of Tempest Mountain. That summit was undeniably a center, from which these lines or rows of points radiated indefinitely, as if the unwholesome Martinese mansion had thrown visible tentacles of terror. The more I analyzed, the less I believed, and against my newly opened mind there began to beat grotesque and horrible analogies based on superficial aspects and upon my experience beneath the earth before i knew it i was uttering frenzied and disjointed words to myself my god molehills the damned place must be honeycombed how many that night at the mansion they took bennett and toby first on each side of us Then I was digging frantically into the mound which had stretched nearest me, digging desperately, shivering but almost jubilantly, digging and shrieking aloud with some unplaced emotion as I came upon a tunnel or burrow just like the one through which I'd crawled the other night. After that, I recall running, spade in hand, a hideous run across moon-litten, mound-marked meadows, and through deceased, precipitous abysses of haunted hillside forest, leaping, screaming and panting, bounding toward the terrible Martinese mansion. I recall digging unreasoningly in all parts of the briar-choked cellar, digging to find the core and center of that malignant universe of mounds, and I recall how I laughed when I stumbled on the passageway, the hole at the base of the old chimney, where the thick weeds grew and cast shadows in the lone candlelight. What still remained down in that hell hive, lurking, waiting for the thunder to arouse it, I did not know. Two had been killed, perhaps that had finished it. But still there remained that burning determination to reach the innermost secret of the fear. My indecisive speculation whether to explore the passage alone and immediately with my pocket light or try to assemble a band of squatters was interrupted after a time by a sudden rush of wind from outside which blew out the candle and left me in stark blackness. The moon no longer shone through the chinks and apertures above me and with a sense of fateful alarm I heard the sinister and significant rumble of approaching thunder. A confusion of associated ideas possessed my brain, leading me to grope back toward the farthest corner of the cellar. My eyes, however, never turned away from the horrible opening at the base of the chimney, and I began to get glimpses of the crumbling bricks and unhealthy weeds as faint glows of lightning penetrated the woods outside. Every second I was consumed with a mixture of fear and curiosity. What would the storm call forth? or was there anything left for it to call? Guided by a lightning flash, I settled myself down behind a dense clump of vegetation through which I could see the opening without being seen. If heaven is merciful, it will some day efface from my consciousness the sight that I saw before me and let me live my last years in peace. I cannot sleep at night now. I have to take opiates when it thunders. The thing came abruptly and unannounced. A demon, rat-like, scurrying from pits remote and unimaginable, a hellish panting and stifled grunting, and then from that opening beneath the chimney, a burst of multitudinous and leprous life, loathsome night-spawned flood of organic corruption, more devastatingly hideous than the blackest conjurations of mortal madness, seething, stewing, surging, bubbling like serpent slime It rolled up and out of that yawning hole, spreading like a septic contagion and streaming from the cellar at every point of aggress, streaming out to scatter through the accursed midnight forests and stew fear, madness, and death. God knows how many there were. There must have been thousands. To see the stream of them in that faint intermittent lightning was shocking. When they had thinned out enough to be glimpsed as separate organisms, I saw that they were dwarfed, deformed, hairy devils, or apes, monstrous and diabolic caricatures of the monkey tribe. They were so hideously silent, there was hardly a squeal, when at last one straggler turned with the skill of long practice to make a meal in accustomed fashion on a weaker companion. Others snapped up at what it left and ate with slavering relish. Then, in spite of my days of fright and disgust, my morbid curiosity triumphed, and as the last of the monstrosities oozed up alone from the netherworld, I drew my automatic pistol and shot it under cover of thunder. Shrieking delivering torrential shadows of red, vicious madness chasing after one another through endless, ensanguined corridors of purple, fulgurous sky. Formless phantasms and kaleidoscopic mutations of a ghoulish, remembered scene. Forests of monstrous, overnourished oaks with serpent roots twisting and sucking unnameable juices from an earth verminous with millions of cannibal devils, like tentacles groping from underground nuclei of polypus perversions. Insane lightning over malignant ivied walls and demon arcades choked with fungus vegetation. Heaven be thanked for the instinct which led me unconscious. And then to places where men dwell, to a peaceful village that slept under the calm stars of clearing skies. I had recovered enough in a week to send to Albany for a gang of men to blow up the Martinese mansion and the entire top of Tempest Mountain, stop up all the discoverable mound burrows, and destroy certain overnourished trees whose very existence seemed to insult sanity. I could sleep a little after they had done this, but true rest will never come again as long as I remember that nameless secret of the lurking fear. The thing will haunt me, for who can say the extermination is complete and that analogous phenomena do not exist all over the world? Who can with any knowledge think of the Earth's unknown caverns without a nightmare dread of future possibilities? I cannot see a well or a subway entrance without shuddering. Why cannot the doctors give me something to make me sleep? or truly calm my brain when it begins to thunder. What I saw in the glow of my flashlight after I shot the unspeakable straggling object was so simple that almost a minute elapsed before I understood and went delirious. The object was nauseous, a filthy whitish gorilla thing with sharp yellow fangs and matted fur. It was the ultimate product of mammalian degeneration, the frightful outcome of isolated spawning, multiplication, and cannibal nutrition above and below the ground. It was the embodiment of all snarling chaos and grinning fear that lurks behind life. It had looked at me as it died, and its eyes had that same odd quality that marked those other eyes which had stared at me underground and excited cloudy recollections. One eye was blue, the other brown. And I knew in one inundating cataclysm of voiceless horror what had become of that vanished family the terrible and thunder crazed house of Martinese. our story. Can you imagine living in a time when writers casually use the words, backwoods mongrel degenerates? Mongrels would be up in arms. Anyways, hope you enjoyed. Maybe the Martinese clan wasn't technically a cult, but who knows what their belief system was. Subterranean face-eating cannibal creatures are always a good time in my book. Tune in next week for the first ever appearance of a Ken Liu mythos story, chock full of eldritch horror. Man, I wish I could say that word better. Horror. It sounds like I'm saying horror every time. And Lovecraft says it constantly. For I was a connoisseur of whores. The unspeakable horror had caught the world's attention and happened to be in a treeless place. Yeah, whatever. Those whitish underground monkeys sleep around. Lovecraft said so. Hey, you want to know who won our 100-character story contest this week? Listener Tom Baker with this one here. They say, write about what you know. So she heeded the advice and had an excellent career writing rejection notices. Every week we have a 100-character story writing contest, not counting spaces, in our discussion forums at forums.travelcast.org. Join the fun, give it a shot, anybody can do it, and us editors read every single story there. Follow us on Twitter for the winners early each week and other stuff, at the All Alright folks, that's our show this week. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Gabbo Vitolo. Gabbo originates from the suburbs of Philadelphia, attended art school in Baltimore, and currently lives a nomadic life. She paints detailed and intricate fictitious creatures that are hybrids of animal observations and that are ultimately about paint sensations and the inexplicable. She's currently living in Tuscany, Italy, conducting research at local butcher shops to make paintings that reflect her interest in the American versus the Italian understanding of the human-animal-nature relationship with meat and butchery, and with food as an object and as a microcosm of the larger culture. Yep. Our program this week is brought to you by Managing Editor Nikki Drayden, Submissions Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Beau Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Steffen, and David Carvin. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you not to go poking walls. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. In the dark corner table sits Lance Fernandez the boss. And his women surround him like clothing, all tussled and ready to talk.